What is crackalacking, Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Havali, coming at you very shortly with my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel. We have our usual mailbag today, but while we were recording and had a great time in locker room, come join us. Sunday is 4 p.m. as of right now. A bunch of people rolled through this time. It was great. There, The Damian Lillard sort of news broke from Chris Haynes that said within the article, basically, that Dame might be inclined to ask out because of his lack of confidence in the Blazers to build a contender. And he wasn't happy with the response to the coaching search where it was the backlash was being put on him, I guess, by a ton of fans. Um, We tackled that live, but I wanted to give just some more nuanced thoughts on it. The... The, the hiring of Chauncey Billups, and I don't, I'm not, this is why I'm going to keep it quick, is because, and I mentioned this in the podcast when we actually talk about the Billups hire separately before the Haynes news broke, uh, th- we don't need to add to the male caucasity commenting on this. Listen to women, um, listen to how they're feeling. Those feelings matter, those sentiments matter, and they are incredibly important. But the Billups hire itself is not on Damian Lillard. That organization in Portland had the chance to be the first one to hire a female head coach in Becky Hammond. And the hiring of a female head coach is overdue. I don't care how you feel about maybe if you thought Mike D'Antoni was a better fit for Portland. It doesn't have to be Portland. It could be New Orleans. It could have been Boston. It's it's overdue. There are female assistants and Becky Hammond, chief among them, that have the experience, the credentials. Carol Lawson's coaching Duke. Like head coaches in college, they're going to, ha- they have the credentials to do this. So it's overdue. The Blazers had the chance to, to be the the first team to ever hire a female head coach. They opted not to, which in itself is, if that's the decision, that's the decision. However, they made, I'm not going to say they made a big performance out of Becky Hammond being a finalist, but it was led to believe that Becky Hammond was a finalist, but then reportings come out that they always zeroed in on Chauncey Billups. So you went from having the chance to either maybe hiring a homegrown name, perhaps it's a you know someone who's not as known, um, one of these, an, an assist, former assistant, current assistant in Portland, or the first ever female head coach in the NBA, and you then opted for someone who was accused of um, sexual assault, rape, uh, decades ago at this point. It was settled. It was, a, it was a civil matter, I believe. I've read a ton on it. I'm probably stumbling through words because maybe I'm a little nervous or anxious here to talk about it. The allegations, people are going to point out that they're allegations, that there are no criminal charges brought. Believe women, listen to women. That doesn't mean you have to presume that so-and-so is guilty, but it happened and there doesn't seem like there's been this huge display of public atonement from Billups who hasn't, to the best of my knowledge, talked about it publicly. And I think what it more so matters here is that the NBA is a privilege and I'm more concerned about the victims that are seeing someone of his status continue to elevate. And it's not even the the woman that was had the um went through the matter with Billups. The call to matter is just stupid. That's a terrible word for it. Anyway, it's other sexual assault victims seeing this, seeing the NBA elevate this uh, this person that was involved in that. The Blazers apparently had their own investigation. And I also want to recognize that, yeah, it's going to be men of color that are disproportionately falsely accused of this. All this stuff matters. It's a very complicated important discussion that people are sensitive to i'm just going to say listen to women believe women the hiring is what i'm focusing on is not and i think the logic behind it is is stupid by the way that's not this is just not the decision you make from a public um relations standpoint like you're flexing as an organization i guess and um you're, you're not made of teflon for this you haven't been good enough 
gotten far enough in the playoffs lately, if you're Neil O'Shea, to just be made of Teflon and have your decision-making process here be beyond reproach. And it was on Neil O'Shea because Damian Lillard wanted Jason Kidd or Chauncey Billups. He did not hire this head coach. I definitely think that there was probably a level of the Blazers wanting to do what their star player prefers. Damian Lillard has four years left on his contract, but he's been so loyal publicly to the organization, and he's one of the 10 best players in the league. You want to try and capitalize on his window, and you've failed thus far to do that. If he wanted Jason Kidd or Chauncey Billups, Kidd immediately removed his name, and that was another um, a candidate who had a history of d- domestic violence issues. Again, it's not on Dame that the hiring took place, so I want to make that clear. What's disappointing, I think, was his response he, I guess, feels like he was being attacked by fans, and I, I do really empathize with, or I should say sympathize with, because I can't relate to it. Professional athletes, the social media followings they have, so vast, just the breadth of the criticism, the type of criticism, the language, and everything that's thrown their way, it has to get overwhelming. But his response was just really bizarre to me, where he was saying, do you want me to apologize for not watching the news when I was seven, eight years old? And I think he could have said that, said, I didn't know. And that's basically what he said. But it was kind of just deflective in the sense that this was his tweet was really I was asked what coaches I like the names I heard in quotes, and I named them. Sorry, I wasn't aware of their history. I didn't read the news when I was seven, eight years old. I don't support those things. But if this is the route you all want to come at me, say less. I just it seems more deflective. You simply could have just said, I didn't know. And I was seven, eight. I didn't know. Um, And I don't support these things. But I do think there's an obligation here then to not want him to be your head coach if that's how you truly feel about this. And maybe that's not even his obligation, but now you're using the coaching situation in Portland as an excuse because this is the opening from the Chris Haynes piece, the enormous backlash from the Portland Trailblazers process to hire a new coach and his concerns on whether a championship contender can be built have become factors that may push the franchise player, Damian Lillard, out the door, league sources told Yahoo Sports. Lillard has remained loyal to Portland in large part due to the tremendous fan base, but over the last few days, he's seen some of those fans attacking him on social media for a pending coaching hire he played no part in consummating. A preference of Damian Lillard does not mean that the Blazers had to hire him. It should be on them more so than the players to do the due diligence, and Woj did say that they did their own investigation into um, Billups' incident, and I really hate calling it that, but into the, the case against Billups. The decision was not on Dame, but he... The response could have been better, and I don't know that the entire fan base... I saw people defending him. I'm still seeing people defend him as I record this. Maybe we hold Damian Lillard to an unfairly higher standard because that's the type of groundwork he set, at least as a leader on the court and off the court of his team, and maybe we need to learn to separate, detach those two, but I think that Damian Lillard could have come out and said, yeah, I didn't read the news when I was seven, eight years old. I don't support those things. That wasn't what went into why I wanted him as a coach. And then maybe the Blazers can even, like, maybe that helps assuage the response to the overall hiring. But this is on the Blazers. Damian Lillard, though, I don't understand how you get from recommending Billups to then deflecting to then saying that the hire is what pushed you out. And don't blame the fans. Um if you're going to exit, because it's not the entire fan base that is criticizing you. That is my official stance on this matter. I wanted to keep it to under seven minutes. I did about seven and a half, so I apologize. Listen to women on this. Listen to people of color on this issue too. So I'm not trying to to whitewash this whole thing. Hope you can at least appreciate where I'm coming from, but let's get into the meat and potatoes of this mailbag. It was a lot of fun. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Valley, coming to you live from the Green Room app. We are recording this episode, so just a heads up if you uh, end up speaking at any point. Um, and regardless of whether you, you speak or not on this one, or if you're listening live or to the recording, please go ahead and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review, give us a rating, as long as it's a five-star, of course. And also follow the YouTube channel for Hardwood Knox. Dan has been putting a lot of effort into curating some good videos for that and just having even more content. We're trying to do it for you each and every day. So Dan, aside from you know working hard on the YouTube channel, how's it going? I'm doing well over here. I mean, how are you doing as we're recording? Just this contentious battle between the Hawks and Bucks where Atlanta looks thoroughly overmatched, but they're still tied 1-1 in the series as we record this. I I don't understand. Game two hasn't happened yet. Fair enough. It didn't I don't think the I don't think the Hawks knew that it happened. Exactly. I've sufficiently wiped it from my memory already. Just like men in black style, just boom, gone. You better hope that the Hawks did too. Yeah, I don't have much confidence in that. <laughs> this, you know, I picked the Bucks pretty handily going into that Atlanta Milwaukee series. I just I think the matchup is terrible. Like the Hawks are not prepared to exploit any weakness that Giannis might have. He is great at exploiting whatever weaknesses the Hawks do have. There's just not really an answer for him aside from like hoping that Solomon Hill and Cam Reddish can step up, which is not what you want to be saying in the Eastern Conference Finals. And beyond that, I just I still think that what we saw in the game two I'm denying exists was more likely to be the reality for Trey Young. He's probably not going to have nine turnovers and shoot so poorly from the field every game. But the Bucks have so many bodies to throw at him between Giannis and Chris Middleton and PJ Tucker and Drew Holiday. There's just such a plethora of defensive options they have to take away the unquestioned fulcrum of the Atlanta offense. I just, I, I didn't have a good feeling about this series going in. And even though it is technically one, one though, it's still one Oh in my mind. Like I just, I can't see Atlanta winning. Yeah. I had bucks in five, the obviously game one, maybe rethink that a little bit. The just watching like Trey young having like when, when the bucks are switching, he's going from drew to Giannis is just like, that's harrowing because it's like, what are you? Yeah, he's going to have better yeah. games, but that's just like, that's impossible. It is. To it's, work with. So, yeah, it's just a Herculean task and he's, he's not there yet. <laughs> Noah says in the chat, feels like I haven't heard Adam in so long. He has, in fact, abandoned us, Noah. So I have returned, that's, that's though, confirmed. Noah. I hope, that's, and we, I hope that's a good thing. We started TBD. on time-ish this week just for you, Noah. Just for you. So you're welcome in advance for this poor content, but it's poor content that is also punctual. I think that matters. The and we have a, so we have a bunch of questions. Obviously, anyone in the room is free to ask in the chat if they want to speak. We will get you on here, of course. Adam is curating that. Um, I want to start with I have a rant. I have a bone to pick with people. The discourse of the NBA discourse, and I want to make it clear that the person who asked this question is not who it's aimed at because they phrased it very respectfully um but santiago which is at santi sauce which is a pretty good handle asks if the suns win it this year which playoff year would be easier 2019 raptors against injured warriors 2020 bubble with lakers winning it all 2021 suns with playing injured teams this whole playoffs no hate to any just an honest question so i want to make it clear santiago is not the one i'm targeting here but i saw some of the discussion after Suns 
Clippers game four that people were talking about how the how the lot how the the NBA gods the basketball gods fate wanted the Bucks and the Suns to get to the finals because of the fortuitous playoff paths that they've had. I would just like to say, with all due respect, and pardon my French, shut the fuck up. This this postseason, this entire year, everyone has dealt with shit. I don't care, and I'm probably going to curse a bunch, so I apologize in advance. I was trying to watch my language more on the podcast. But every team went through stuff. See? There we go. This ends repression this year. Yes, the Bucks were healthier than most. This was still a truncated schedule for everyone. The second half was tough for a lot of teams. They still had to go up against a Nets team that had Kevin Durant and took them to seven games and would have actually beaten them if Kevin Durant had a normal human-sized foot. You're discrediting the Nets by saying that. I know James Harden wasn't healthy, fully healthy. I know Kyrie Irving missed a bunch of time in that series. You play the teams that are in front of you, and that's all you can do. And the other thing is, are we just going to neglect the fact that uh, the Suns didn't have Chris Paul for the first three games of this series? Or does, or two games, excuse me. Or does that not matter? Or that he came out and took a collective shit all over the court in his first game back? Because, hey, guess what? He hadn't played basketball in basically a month. And even watching him in game four, he looked better, but he still doesn't have like his same feel for the game left. Like, yeah, the passing, but we have another question that we'll get to after this, just because it's topical about the, the pace of play with CP3 on the court, but they didn't have him. Devin Booker broke his fucking nose, and he hasn't been playing well, hasn't been shooting the same since. He had to take off his mask in the middle of game four because he's been fidgeting with it so much. Every team is dealing with things. Yes, the Clippers lost Kawhi. Yes, the Lakers were banged up. Anthony Davis is always injured. That's part of the calculus with Anthony Davis. Yeah, it's weird that LeBron James was injured. LeBron James is also age 36. Like, you can't necessarily count him to be fully healthy all the time. The Jazz, they didn't have Mike Conley. What happens in that series? Donovan Mitchell was playing on one and a half ankles. We don't have to do this dumbass talk after everything that's happened. You know, Philly, if they had different players, Joel B was playing on a, a partially torn meniscus. But if they had a different, you know, player that was Ben Simmons, who actually cared about taking shots and not passing up wide open dunks, there are caveats to every team, obstacles for every team. Let's not do this. And the thing that really blows my, my mind is the, the rings discourse is, oh, player X isn't great. Actually, Chris Paul isn't great because he doesn't have a ring or he's somehow a failure. Now Chris Paul might get a ring and it was too fucking easy. I am so fed up. I know that social media can't be the place for nuance, especially on Twitter where you have 280 characters. Thread it or at least be fucking smarter because this is dumb. This is stupid. It's inane. I can't. Like, I've had to, I run brand accounts, so I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm just not putting as much stuff in my own personal things because they're just so much dumbassery on the timeline right now. Like, are we really doing this? And the bubble, and this isn't, again, a shot at Santiago, I don't know that it was easy. I mean, they were sequestered and not, you. there was a pandemic going on. They are probably worried about the safety of their friends and family outside the bubble. So, I... I don't, and look, the Raptors, to think that that playoff run was easy, by the way, I definitely, if I picked one, which I'm not going to, I get, like, if you had to pick one, I don't even know what I'd pick. It wouldn't be the Raptors, though, I'm going to tell you right now, just because they, that, that series against Philly, Milwaukee was like, that was a good team, and it looked like, you know, it, the Raptors had to seize control of that series, and the Warriors were still the Warriors. Like, I know that Kevin Durant was injured, but like, and that Clay Thompson got hurt later on in the series, but Clay Thompson was still in that series. Steph exists. 
Draymond Green exists. Like, I just, I can't with the, and last time I'm going to say this, not a shot at Santiago. The, I, I almost went off on Twitter on Saturday night because of, of those takes about Clipper, uh, the Suns and the Bucks. No, it wasn't easy to get here. Yes, Milwaukee's been healthier than most. They don't have Dante DiVincenzo. They've also been shooting bricks from threes more often than not. And I think you could argue that their coach, Mike Budenholzer, despite making really good adjustments in game two, is a roadblock unto himself. Every team is dealing with shit. Let's stop acting like winning an NBA title is going to be easier for certain teams in any given year. Injuries are part of the calculus, and especially this season and even last season. I'm not going to discredit any teams that accomplished anything because the context, the circumstances under which they came were just so unprecedented because of what we were dealing with. So everyone who is thinking that the Suns are having this easy road to the finals, that the Bucks are having this super easy road to the finals, I implore you, I beg you, as I started at the top of this, shut the fuck up. That was my rant. I'm like sweating because it made me so angry. At, uh, at 9.17 a.m. Mountain Time, I got a text from Dan that said, I have another rant I'd like to go on today. And I was just like, I'm going to green light that without even knowing what it is, just because I like hearing Dan get so worked about, worked up about this stuff. I, I honestly thought it was going to be about the recent coaching hires and the NBA kind of like saying one thing about valuing and you know wanting women to feel included in the league and all that and then going and entirely different direction with these recent hires uh you know like using becky hammond as like a smoke screen to make the chauncey billups hire more palatable or like the mavericks organization that has had toxic workplace culture and sexual harassment issues hiring jason fucking kid um so that's where i thought you were going with this but the funny part i want to say when i saw this question i didn't want to add to the male caucasity of the chauncey billups hire and i think you retweeted it and you're probably going to get into it. So I'll let you speak. But like the the Blazers Edge published a great article where women wrote about it. And my really two fantastic. words, three three words. Listen to women. Just on this. Just listen to women on this. I'm sorry, but yeah. please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no. I was I was just going to say like the the question that prompted your rant at the top of the episode. Um, I had the exact same planned response, albeit with a little bit less passion. I was I was more just going to respond like. My automatic answer to any question like that is, can you please point to one team in NBA history that has not benefited from some sort of luck on the way to an NBA title? It is inherent to the process. Part of winning a championship is being lucky. It's getting a little bit fortunate with not having injuries on your own team, with having injuries to other teams, with having fortuitous matchups. You play who's in front of you and you beat who's in front of you. And that's all you can control. So like, that's, that's just my automatic go-to response with this topic every single time. So I think we have like the exact same points. Just mine is a, a little bit shorter. <laughs> I just, there was too much of it going around on Twitter, which got to me. Uh, we do have a question in the chat. Unless you want, do you want to say anything on the coaching hours aside from what you just said, which I completely agree with? Not particularly. I'm just, I've just been frustrated with the responses that I've seen to, to post about that on Twitter and just the willingness to immediately dismiss it. Um, it's, it's frustrating. Um, just be better. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's all I've got. And listen to women, because I'm not a fan of pointing out that it was like allegations and a civil suit against Chauncey Billups. It's making women, it's making victims of sexual assault feel a certain kind of way. And that absolutely 100% unequivocally matters. 
to get back to basketball, that was quite the segue. Noah in the chat asked question, how is DeAndre Ayton so good? It's it's kind of baffling, isn't it? Just the amazing progression we've seen in sh- such a short amount of time. Because he was not this player during the regular season. I mean, he was really good during the regular season, but he wasn't quite this much of a takeover figure on both ends of the floor. It's just, I don't know if it's a confidence thing, if it's him talking about Chris Paul being such a good mentor and really empowering him to play this kind of high-quality basketball, if it's beneficial matchups, if it's the game slowing down and just him making the proper decisions on both ends almost every time down the court. It just it feels like one of those situations where the switch flipped. As cliche as of an answer as that may be, I don't know that it's like some new skill development or some X's and O's thing that's allowing him to maximize his game so much as just the game slowing down and his feel for it just going off the charts. It was just funny because as you were saying, it just clicked. Um, Amy SK said, with DA, it feels like it just all clicked in the playoffs. <laughs> Lane locks up there. And I, I agree with you. I think, look, you were right about the regular season where I think we saw like a similar peak they were just so short because he was so inconsistent and he's put together the best stretch and most consistent stretch of basketball um, of his career during these playoffs. I think what he's done defensively has been huge hitting the offensive glass. It does feel like he's getting to the, like his, his shot selection is smarter. I think he might just be more comfortable playing within the flow of the offense rather than being this focal point. And so that he's been able to focus on that. And then just what he's able to do defensively is you, you know, everyone they face so far, even the Clippers downsizing at times, you can't play him off the floor. And that's huge. And all like the discourse has shifted to, is he going to get a max extension now? Which is wild because I'm counting myself as a DeAndre Ayton fan and talking with the, our good buddies, homies from the timeline pod about him earlier in the year. Uh, they've always been spot on about him and they've, they've been you know objective and accurate and sort of covering him as he goes. But at, at that moment in time, I think I was higher on him than them. And I, that more speaks to, no, this isn't a victory lap for me. It's just, that's how turbulent his stock has been. And I think we're recalibrating our impression of DeAndre Ayton, what he is in the NBA. He was lauded for his offensive talent when he was drafted number one overall. This is someone who's like, can compliment on offense and then be your backline anchor, apparently, on defense and is going to hit the offensive glass like really hard. That's a, it's a different kind of player, but it's sort of the M- Mikhail Bridges of bigs. Like, you absolutely want that player on your team if you're trying to win a title. Absolutely. And Carlo, I just want to say, I see your speaker request. We're going to get to you as soon as we finish up on this topic. I just wanted to say briefly, like this 2018 draft class just looks better and better by the day. I mean, just think about how many high quality contributors have already emerged from that headlined, obviously by Luka Doncic and Trey Young. But then we have DeAndre Aiden and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Mikhail Bridges and Mitchell Robinson and Michael Porter Jr. and Robert Williams and Dante DiVincenzo and Devontae Graham and Jaron Jackson Jr. and Jalen Brunson and DeAnthony Melton and Miles Bridges. The list goes on and on. And there are role players even beyond that group who are making legitimate impacts on good teams. This, this draft class is going to be part of all-time conversations down the road. I will, before you throw it to the speaker request, I almost want, I'm not, I root for chaos, just as someone who covers the league at large. But think about the memes if DeAndre Ayton and Trey Young make the NBA Finals before Luka Doncic does. I'm I'm just going to be here for those memes. So I'm already tired of that conversation. No, no, no. And it hasn't even happened. (laughs) The conversation is stupid. And I get asked on every like radio interview or podcast that I do, 
is does this make the DeAndre Ayton over Luka Doncic pick worth it? Or were the Hawks smart to trade, um, make that trade, the Luka Doncic trade? And it's like, you know, that trade is still, insofar as we need to talk about it, like Cam Reddish is still a big part of that trade, what he turns into. Right. Uh, but it's still so early and that it takes away from the discussion. I think the jokes are going to be spectacular, though, if it's Trey For Young sure. and DeAndre Ayton. Reaching the finals in the same year, not just before Luka Doncic, but reaching the finals in the same year. Right. right. You need to have. The, you need to let yourself have more fun. I have trouble with that. With the with the Trey Luca trade, I think like where I'm at now with it is very much that like the Mavericks won that trade, but the Hawks definitely didn't lose it. I'm laughing because Noah said in the chat, Kevin Knox, future Hall of Famer, because you didn't list him off. Oh, definitely. Team draft. I, I apologize that, for that glaring oversight, but I'm, still, I'm going to go ahead. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm still mad they didn't pick Shea. You know, I was lobbying for Shea. I know, I know. Back then, but. I am going to welcome Carlo to the podium here. How is it going today, Carlo? And what, what do you have for us? Uh, hi, guys. So, uh, can you hear me? Uh, because I have a little problem sometimes. Yeah, we can hear you. It's just a little bit faint on the audio. I don't know if you're a little far from a microphone or anything. Uh, let me take out my uh, headphones. So Nick should have taken Shay. That's where we've landed at. That's just I'm just going to throw that back out there again. It still hurts. So imagine if they had Shay and Tyrese Halliburton. <laughs> that is much better, Carlo. We can hear you much, okay. much more clearly. Uh, do you think that this playoff uh, can be the passing of the torch between the old guys and the new generation? Because uh, I think that, uh, as Dan pointed out, uh, there are no easy championship, and uh, even if uh, Two of these uh, uh, conference finance teams uh, seem weak at the start of the year. So, uh, Suns and Hawks, we are going to see them in the playoff and doing tr- mischiefs for the next uh, three to four years, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic question. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked that one because I think that the national NBA media and you know the talking heads that we see are too reticent to promote that kind of passing of the torch that it does feel like we're seeing and it's not to say that the old guard is going anywhere you know like we fully expect lebron james and you know the others in that category to still be extremely relevant and playing at an extraordinarily high level moving forward but it does feel like th- these playoffs have been a fantastic opportunity for the young guns to put their stuff on display i mean I don't remember if I told you this already or not, Dan. And, you know, it it almost feels like that, you know, I I overheard this in the coffee shop story, but like my wife and I were playing with our our toddler at a park the other day and saw some teenagers shooting hoops at the playground, pretending to be Devin Booker and Trey Young. And like, that's got to be happening everywhere. So it's, it, it really does feel like this has thrust those up and coming figures into the national consciousness in a way that just doesn't happen without the opportunity of a chaotic postseason experience. Uh, yeah, I think it was people worrying about the ratings and stuff. And I'm, you know, if you want to worry about the ratings, I do think there's a discussion to be had about how the NBA can improve them and needs to improve them. If you don't want to care about the ratings, that's not your responsibility as a basketball fan. So you don't have to care about the ratings. I think this was a blessing, not even in disguise, which is a flat out blessing for the league, because as Carlos mentioned, this is serving, even if it's not supposed to be like the actual harbinger that this transition is happening, it's eventually going to happen. And mm-hmm. you want 
these youngsters to be appreciated just as much as a Steph and known just as much as a Steph, a LeBron, a Kevin Durant, because they're the future of the league is, yeah, Luca front facing. We get it. But like Trey, it's important. Devin Booker, who's been billed as this empty calories guy nationally, never, never locally there in Phoenix for too long. And it took, you know, I would say that that was mostly gone through this season. But I think even you look at the all NBA results, Chris Paul makes second team and Devin Booker doesn't get consideration for either team really when you look at the scores and then you look at what happened in the playoffs and how he really helped the Suns navigate CP3's first his shoulder injury when he's trying to play through it and then his absence and there's still that disconnect there when you're looking outside of Phoenix so I think seeing these guys in this stage is super important and then you're kind of getting it on the ground floor of these other players like DeAndre Ayton like yeah I know he was good this season and he improved defensively a bunch as a sophomore but like this is still someone who like is in established and now you're seeing him on this national stage. I think it ends up being huge for that type of player. Ditto for like a Mikhail Bridges. So, and even, you know, maybe even for John Collins, just because the way he's played defense a lot in these playoffs and like come up with huge plays. And, you know, when he's playing with Clint Capella, he's not the primary screener anymore. And like, he still found ways to impact the game. And so I think it even trickles down further, like those second tier guys that, you know, they're not as big or mission critical to the league's future, but now these fans know them, they've watched them and, They've generated excitement because it's the postseason. Tyler Ansel in the chat asked, with LeBron and KD out of these playoffs, did your interest level change in any way? I'm sure that for some people it did because, you know, the more casual observers, and I want to be clear that when I use that word casual, it's not like it's typically used on Twitter where I mean that as an insult. Like there are different levels of fandom and we shouldn't serve as gatekeepers to fandom for sports that we enjoy. Um, I do think that there are some casual fans who are going to, going to be more disinclined to tune into playoff games without names and, and people who they, they already recognize. But if you're just watching these playoffs to enjoy good basketball games, I, I don't want to speak for you, Dan, but just speaking for myself, like, no, like, I don't think my interest level changed whatsoever because ultimately I want the most compelling games and the most compelling outcomes. And if that means that LeBron is carrying the the Lakers through their injuries into the finals, so be it. If that means that he's going to lose in the first round for the first time in his career, and we're going to have an opportunity to see Chris Paul go after a ring and the Devin Booker emergence and see DeAndre Ayton take that gigantic leap forward. Like that's highly entertaining to me as well. I've always watched sports kind of from a legacy perspective I can't help myself, but like want to put things in historical context and see in my own head, like how people are moving up and down that historical pecking order for me. And that works for everyone. You know, if LeBron and KD were still there, like they're pushing against that upper echelon. But at the same time, it's just as much fun to see new legacies carved out and their absences have allowed for that opportunity, which to me is just as compelling, maybe even more compelling than seeing the same figures compete each and every year. Yeah, I'm with you. And there's like there's different levels of legacy ifying. Like we don't need to is is Katie a failure because like he couldn't leave the net like that stuff is like too lowbrow. But I'm I'm with you on on everything you said. And this is I mean it actually kind of toes into the next question and it it does pertain to the series, but like there were even things on Twitter, I think a couple casual, like more ca- and look, I'll say it like football. I'm not really like into football. And so I'll watch some of the playoffs or the Super Bowl. Like, that's what intrigues me. And so there are people that are doing that for the NBA. Like, they're not watching the regular season. They're choppering in for the playoffs. And you want to make sure that they're still engaged. And that, yeah, they might tune out if LeBron's not in. 
if they are tuning in, you definitely want to make sure that the cadence of the game is not being butchered and pro- prolonged by the replay review, which I think is important. Scott Foster. Sorry, sorry. I should have muted myself for that. Which I think is important, but we got to figure out a way to expedite it. Otherwise, I would prefer the randomness inherent of human error to these, you know, what was it? Was that game two? Clipper Suns that took 30 minutes for the last 90 seconds? That's just unacceptable. And this is just tangentially related to that. Aaron has two questions. And the first one he asks is, I think there will be a rule change concerning the out-of-bounds calls, campaign, Batoon in game four, Beverly book game two, Beverly... Um, LeBron Christmas, what are your thoughts on that? What's the right call? I, this is like a consensus thing, right? It's you shouldn't. It shouldn't be off of. Let's use the. I think the most. Well, let's use campaign Batum because that was the most recent one in Game Four. It's just like no, it shouldn't be off campaign if his hand was literally pushed into it. Like the ball didn't go out of bounds because campaign like misdribbled. It went out of bounds because Nicholas Batum forced it out of bounds. Yeah, if you're. If you're applying these high-def, ultra-slow-motion cameras, you're going to be able to change literally thousands of calls throughout NBA history, even if we're isolating it to the final minutes of close games. Because when you look at it with that level of detail and forced perspective, you're going to notice things that you know really don't matter that much. Like, okay, yeah, it might have, like, slid off the tip of his finger like last and that was the final thing to touch the ball before it went out of bounds he doesn't lose the handle if the ball isn't poked away by a defender so i it's it's hard to adjudicate intent but i feel like there has to be some of that here because it just feels wrong for a turnover to occur that way where it's clearly the defender forcing the ball out of bounds, and, oh, it just happened to graze his fingertip last because that's how the limbs aligned. I mean, technically, yeah, it, they're the right calls, but they shouldn't be the right calls. I hate well, that I'm agreeing th- with Jeff Van Gundy. You know how much that bothers me. But, and then in game four, I can't even remember what I'm mixing up the call, but like they didn't review it, and the call technically went the other way. And so like, if you're not even going to call it consistently in these situations, like at least do that. Um, and we'll get to Amy SK's question just after the second one from Aaron. Uh, this one is, I would say, spicy. Um, not as spicy as Aaron asked, is, is DeAndre Ayton better than Rudy Gobert on defense? Was the other question I did not put in our document because I don't think we need to discuss that, to be honest with you. As much as I love my sons, CP3 really slows down our pace in, in these past two games. Playing pain in, in bigger minutes helps transition offense, which I think the Suns are good at, and Aiton is amazing in transition defense. Do you think we should limit CP3's minutes in the next game? Nope. I think he'll get better at at least allowing you to get into semi-transition. That's like Chris Paul is the the author, like the advent of the semi-transition three, where it's like, no, you're not really running the floor, but the defense hasn't set yet. So I would give it a little bit more time, but I don't think – Limiting CP3's minutes ever is going to be the answer, unless he's actually dealing with an injury, which at this point, we don't, we haven't, like his shoulder seems to be fine. So I'm not taking Chris Paul off the floor ever. And I also think, even, and I do think the pace is a concern. The timeline pod guys have discussed this in the past, that that's what CT, like, your, your team adopts that sort of identity where it's more methodical. But Devin Booker kind of likes to play that way too. And yes, he, he will get out and go faster in those situations more often than, than Chris Paul. Still, I don't know how you take Chris Paul off the court. And I think it also matters just the chemistry he has with DeAndre Ayton um, and what he's going to say to him on the court in between whistles or, or dead balls. So 
no, I would not be limiting CP3's minutes again unless he's dealing with an injury. But they played him, what was it, like 38 minutes or 40 minutes when he first came back from mm-hmm. COVID. So I don't think they're worrying about limiting his minutes. I mean, having strategic variance is usually a good idea. It's usually beneficial to the winning effort, but strategic variance should be superseded by the yawning chasm between Chris Paul and campaign. Like kudos to campaign for turning his career around to this extent that this question is even possible. But Chris Paul's a little bit better at the whole basketball thing. And ultimately the Suns are going to be better when they have their best players on the court. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think that's a, a debate. But Amy SK asks, um, if the Suns make it out, let's change that to win. 3-1, Clippers, no Kawhi. That's the easiest path to a finals appearance I've ever seen. Um, oh, God. <laughs> when, the, when, the Suns, when the Suns go through, who do you think they'll match up better out of the Hawks-Bucks? Hmm. I mean, I think you just want to play the Hawks probably because they're not as good as the Bucks. Um, I, I also, I, I do think the Suns probably have more answers for Giannis than most teams, especially with this development of Aiden into a legitimate backline anchor. But they also have the personnel to really limit Trey Young, which does more to diminish the Hawks' chances than limiting Giannis does because the Bucks have more creators around him. You know, they still have Drew Holiday. They still have Chris Middleton, who's able to get from scratch buckets in just about any situation. The Hawks have a plethora of off-ball weapons and good shooters, but especially with Bogdan Bogdanovich a little bit hobbled, they do not have a little as bit? much. Yeah, a lot bit. They do not have as much off-the-bounce juice. So if you limit Trey, you've limited the entire offense, and they have the personnel to do that. I'm with you. I also think that probably more so than any other team Atlanta would have faced to that point, should they make the finals, that Phoenix will hunt mismatches with him. I'm sure because mm-hmm. the Knicks didn't, uh, we didn't see that. Like Philly just didn't have the personnel to do that. And I guess the Bucks like do it a little, but like they will, the Suns will figure out a way to put Trey Young like up against Devin Booker or Chris Paul. The Bucks almost don't need to against Atlanta because Giannis is just an inherent mismatch for anyone on the Hawks they're just they do not like some teams have you know we, we've we talked for years about LeBron stoppers right and I think for years now we're going to be talking about Giannis stoppers the Hawks don't have one they don't have anyone who can even pretend to be one so shame on you they don't really the need Hill to, they don't really need to hunt mismatches fair enough uh I do think the Hawks would match up I mean you could say this with the Bucs, too. They would match up a lot better against the Suns if DeAndre Hunter was healthy. And if Cam Reddish is able to work himself into defensive form, we know what he is on offense. Let's make that clear, which is not good, at least so far in his career. Um, they would be more interesting to me. But I, I think you'd rather face the Hawks. But I just, if the Hawks make it out of the Bucks series, I need to know what happened in Milwaukee that they just imploded. Or, like, did we? Like, what? I, I just don't know. But there's, when you look at the Hawks roster, like, there's nothing that Phoenix can't plan for even right. like defensively, it's just like DeAndre Ayton versus Capella or Collins. Awesome. Uh, you could put Mikael Bridges on Trey. You could put Chris Paul on Trey. You could put Jay Crowder on Trey. You probably shouldn't put Jay Crowder on Trey. I'm going to retract that back. You could put Jay Crowder on like Bogdanovich or Gallo, who's been like, he's has his hair has come in. Has he gets more hair? He's gotten more good basketball under his belt. I don't know. It seems like those two things might be related. So, yeah, I would rather face 
Atlanta. My hunch is having picked Bucks in five, I think they're going to end up facing Milwaukee. I don't think they match up poorly against Milwaukee. I think Aiton might become the single most important player to the Suns in that series, though. Maybe Jay Crowder, just because those are going to be the guys that are going up against Giannis. I think that's fair. I do think that the the discussion with Hawks Bucks could have tra- changed drastically had DeAndre Hunter been healthy, because there's yeah. there's your best chance at having somewhat of a Giannis counter. Yeah, no, I'm 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 in total agreement with you. That's something that the Hawks are going to need to look at in the offseason, though. Is they need like they still need wings because they have Kevin Herter, they have Cam Reddish, they have DeAndre Hunter, but like Hunter is really the only two way guy for them. And Reddish is not going to go up against the bigger wings defensively. And then Kevin Herter is just sad his moments. And like he's great on offense, but so th- that's something that they need to look at. Uh, we're I do feel leave validated this. that oh, I do feel validated that in one of our previous episodes going into the playoffs, we were trying to figure out who was going to be like the biggest name to emerge from these playoffs. And Herter was my pick, and I feel like that's been kind of justified so far with his his big game seven performance in the previous series and just the all around importance. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would argue that Trey Young's emergence might be a little bit bigger than, than Kevin Herter's, but I, I guess I yeah, know... non All Star Trey Young. That's fair. <laughs> um, we're gonna leave Bucks, Hawks, and Suns, Clippers to talk about the NBA at large. Now, Carrigan <coughs> asked, "Excuse me, as I'm choking, if the Utah Jazz were forced to make a trade, what would be the most likely move?" Uh, I know you hate these types of questions. But if you have an answer and want to go first, otherwise I will take the talking stick here, as I am wont to do. I mean, I think it's you, ultimately anything that's not breaking up the core. I, I don't think that there's good reason to move away from the Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley pairing. It's going to be something on the periphery. I think – so the thing that I think depends the most – they're not moving Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell. Like that is just uh, – I mean it's weird that Rudy Gobert liked that post – that said he needed to get the ball more. So there's like, there's, there is a weird dynamic there. We knew that I'd be flabbergasted if one of those two guys removed this off season, but you do need to, one of the things I think is dependent on, are you bringing Mike Conley back? I think you have to, but like, does he want to go somewhere else? Let's assume Mike Conley comes back. Cause I'm not, the jazz were the best team in the regular season. I don't necessarily know why he'd want to leave. Um, and he's very important to getting Rudy Gobert the ball. Speaking of Rudy Gobert, liking that post, you do kind of have to trade a member of like the core there because you look at the Jazz's core as like those eight or nine guys. And so when you go up and down their team, um, in terms of untouchables, you have, let's say, those three, and mostly because Conley's a free agent. I think Royce O'Neal has to be by default the next most untouchable player. He's probably the most attractive trade asset, but unless you're getting back someone who's a lot better than Royce O'Neal and has a better defensive scope, he's your single most important perimeter defender at this point. So then you're looking at Joe Ingles expiring contract, 13 million. Jordan Clarkson has three years, like 39 million left. Did just win six men of the year. You have Boyan Bogdanovich two years at like 38, 39 million, a hair of an overpay, but he is good and he can be a defensive liability, but he can also like, if he has to go up against stronger wings who aren't going to look to really push their own pace, he can hold his own. And then you have Derek favors, I just don't know what Derek Favors' value is when he has two years, you know, a little under $20 million left on his deal. I think what they, the type of player they would target is you need a wing who can defend some other bigger wings and maybe not crater your offense. And you also need that wing to be available for pennies on the dollar because you don't have trade assets. Their best package is after the draft, you trade number 30, 
and then one of your matching salaries. Joe Ingles might be the most attractive one because he's still really good and then expiring. Derek Favors, I think, is semi-useful because he's so cheap. I'm curious to know what teams around the league would think of Jordan Clarkson. And the trade that I've sort of bandied about, and maybe it's straight up because Clarkson was so good this year, Clarkson for Josh Richardson. Clarkson goes to Dallas that needs another shot creator desperately, and Clarkson is going to create shots. How comfortable you feel about paying him long-term, that's on Dallas. Richardson was terrible this year. He has a player option that I'm not sure whether he'll pick up just because I assume he would get at least that much money, uh, $12 million on the open market, but for how long and can you up your value? But if he opts in um, at $11.6 million, and I, I, don't, I honestly don't have a, a feel for whether he'll do that. That's the type of player that Utah needs because he was so bad on offense this year, but they just generate so, many, so much space and wide open looks that that might be the place for him. And so that would be, if I'm them, that's the route I go. I just, I'd be curious to see what the Jazz think of that. Um, and w- w- even what the Mavericks think of that, it's like a weird challenge trade. And I, I'm not trying to discredit how good Clarkson was this year, but he's just, he's such a wild card. And Noah says it has to be Boyan. I feel like I, I get where you're coming from, Noah, but like he makes so much money that unless you're also cutting payroll in the process, like which player are you going after that you need to give up this $18 million salary for? And none of, I can no, think of nothing one. springs to mind. Okay, go ahead. I, I do have one. I think that if Portland is looking to, change things up that Robert Covington who would be on an expiring deal worth just under 13 million dollars would be a really intriguing target for Utah just because you have that off-ball defensive weapon who also has some three and d juice to his game that would be a dream target but it is reliant on Portland being willing to change up how they're doing things and making their defense worse in the process. Right, that might be like a right. third-team situation where I could – because I think Bojan could help. Look, he shot like 50% on pull-out triples in the postseason. So I think there would be teams – like the Knicks would take him into cap space in a heartbeat. Like that – or San Antonio mm-hmm. might do the same. You obviously want value for him. So, yeah, if, if you want to make a big swing like you're talking about um, and maybe even think bigger than Robert Covington, like if you're attaching a first to Bojan, maybe there's a third team. Maybe that gets Portland thinking for some reason if they decide to go a different direction. But if you're trying to aim higher – Otherwise, I think like a Josh Richardson type player, someone whose value is a little bit lower than it should be, but who you know can help you where we're not going, oh, they had Shaq Harrison and didn't play him type player. Mm-hmm. Because we can name like David Nawaba would be a free agent target for them. But are they actually going to play David Nawaba in the postseason? Like I'm trying to think of someone Probably they would not. acquire to actually play in the postseason. Yeah. Right. This next question comes from Alex Khalifa as are Knicks fans in for a letdown next season? Now, before you answer, I will say we did record a Knicks pod with the folks from Knicks Film School, Blue Wire, Blue Wire pods, homies, just like the timeline pod. So listen to that. We, I did ask. We talked at length about that. But I'm curious as to your thoughts on that question. <laughs> Noah, wait, Noah answered it for me. He said the answer is no. I mean, it depends wholly on the expectations. If Knicks fans are convinced that this team is set up to take a major leap forward beyond this season's excellence, then yeah, there's probably going to be a bit of a letdown. If the expectations are more realistic and realize that like there are legitimate issues with this roster, it's going to be tough to figure out exactly how to improve it, especially with a new contract looming for Julius Randle. And we might be looking at another first round appearance and a tough series in, the, in that opening round then no, it's probably not going to be a letdown. I do think that the the newfound culture around this Knicks organization with Tom Thibodeau, 
leading the charge with R.J. Barrett developing, with Derrick Rose becoming a really useful player, with Julius Randle taking these massive leaps forward. This roster is set up to be a continued playoff presence in the Eastern Conference. It just isn't necessarily primed for that gigantic leap forward. I I agree with you. I think what a lot of people are underestimating is that I what Knicks fans want is for their team to operate like a normal team. And so if they do that this offseason where they don't give out any bad contracts, make any bad trades, they'll be able to accept regression in the standings. Because look, given the season, I'm not saying it was easier for them. They were just healthier than most teams. I don't know that you could be like, they need to be four in the Eastern Conference because that's not realistic. They also have a lot of dudes that are free agents that they might not keep. Like Alec Burks is going to be in demand. I would argue Nolan's Noel will be in demand. Reggie Bullock, you know, speaking of people that fit well in the Jazz, they can't afford him. But like Reggie Bullock is going to be in demand. Uh, Noah says Adam is treading on thin ice right now. So, well, okay, so let's do this. We're gonna so ch- the, the Knicks, the Knicks went forty-one and thirty-one this season. They were the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference, winning the tiebreaker over the Atlanta Hawks. So let's set the over/under at the at four point five seed for next year. Where are they going to fall? I I don't I, look. I think the roster is so fluid. Noah said under, and I would agree with him. But in this, but in this case, does under mean like they'll be a top four seed or they'll be below? Oh, I, that? Was, I would say below it. And what I'm so I, this would be the best way to frame it for me is if if that happens, it's not necessarily a bad sign because the East could be deeper next year. Just like what if the Pacers are healthy? Uh, Boston could be better. Miami could be better. But the other I think what you need to look at this offseason uh, and that's, look, I like where no, I'm just asking for 500. Like, honestly, I've suffered for too long. I get that sentiment. If you get there without doing anything detrimental in the process, more power to you. But I would, I would argue, and I'm not endorsing this, but if the Knicks do regress substantially, it's probably because they didn't prioritize the immediate picture. And that's a fantastic sign, in which case you shouldn't be disappointed if that happens next season. If they want let's say the Warriors really want Julius Randle. Let's just say, and they're willing to give you number seven and 14. For Julius Randle and then your two first-round picks or one of your two first-round picks at 19 and 21. If you make that trade, and you don't have to, but if you get number seven in this draft, and I'm not saying the Warriors want Julius Randle. I'm trying to use this as an example. That shows a forethought that, hey, this season was great. We're not good enough to win a title. The flip side of that would also be if a star becomes available, if Damian Lillard, as Chris Haynes reports, um, I don't know if you saw that, uh, which is, and we I, we need to cover it because it's pure comedy, actually. So, but let's quickly, if Damian Lillard wants out of Portland, if uh, if Bradley Beal wants out of Washington, Zach Levine's kind of fringe. I don't know how much you give up to get him. I would still, you know, if you're the Knicks looking at where you are, maybe you make that type of move. But where it gets discouraging is if they go all in on free agency because they can have more than $50 million in cap space. And they won't actually because I'm assuming they'll keep some of their own guys, um, maybe even Derek Rose. But that's what would be, that's how you look for progress here is that it can't be tied to where they finish in the Eastern conference because the Eastern conference in the middle is fluid. Like right now, because we don't even know what's going on with Philadelphia, you have Milwaukee and Brooklyn at the top. Are you willing to put pencil in any other two teams up there, Adam? I think you can make a reasonable case that Atlanta will be up there just given how much here we go. is present. No, no, no. I mean, yeah, for you're, real, you're right. Though. Noah. he's treading on, he's treading on thin ice. Noah. Noah had it right. No, I'm not, I know. No, I think it's, I think it's fair. Um, but, like, would you even pencil Atlanta? Like, couldn't you talk yourself into maybe Miami or Boston being better than Atlanta next year? 
I, I think I would have trouble doing that at this point, given what we've seen in the playoffs and just how much young talent there is to still develop. Did and you invite the expectation a Hawks fan of continuity. in here? I did not. <laughs> Jake- I love this. This is great. Thank you, Jacob Abro. <laughs> I think Adam's stacking the deck of guests in here. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Jacob, though. We have a question in the chat, though, um, from scrolling up from oh, Amy SK. Does Kate Cunningham make Detroit a playoff playing team right away? I think the world of Cade Cunningham, he would, he would be my clear cut number one pick at this stage that is most likely not going to change at any point in the pre-draft process. But for two reasons, I don't think that you can heap that amount of expectation onto him and the Pistons in year one. One of the reasons is Cunningham himself, like ultimately rookie guards tend to go through some struggles during their initial NBA experiences. The speed of the game is entirely different. And Cunningham has the profile of a player who might require a bit more of an adjustment period just because he's already so turnover prone, averaging four turnovers per game at Oklahoma State as a freshman. And you can easily counter that by looking at the quality of the offense around him, which was pretty much non-existent. There aren't any other NBA caliber players on that roster Maybe there are a lot fewer turnovers if he's asked to do less, if he can rely more on those kickout passes to his teammates who largely just weren't hitting those open looks. But he still has the profile of a guy who is going to experience some degree of of acclimation to the NBA. And the second reason is the Pistons. They are not really in a position to make a gigantic leap. You know, Jeremy Grant showed that he was such an improved player this year. But beyond that, I don't know what you're looking at with this roster where you're like, they do have enough talent to immediately make the jump up into playoff contention in a deeper, better Eastern Conference. The only players coming off the books are Dennis Smith Jr., Wayne Ellington, and Hamadou Diallo, and Corey Joseph has a non-guaranteed contract. But who on that roster are you pointing to as like that number two, number three guy? beyond Jeremy Grant and Cade Cunningham. Are, are you counting on Killian Hayes just making a massive sophomore leap despite not seeing too much from him during his rookie season? Or like Isaiah Stewart suddenly blossoming into a two-way force? There, there are pieces with upside here, but this is going to be a little bit of a longer rebuild than fans might want to believe. Yeah, I think we'll re-diverge. I'm probably higher on the talent they have in place than you. I like the cadence to Killian Hayes' game in some of what we saw from his 18 games. But it's going to take time. And Sadiq Bey having more ball skills than I think. And you had him first team all-rookie when we did our um, yep. all-rookie team. So they have the talent there. But I think what you the most salient point you made was that there's going to be a learning curve for Kate Cunningham just because of the type of role he's going to be expected to play. My question to you, um, I don't know if you saw Sam Vecini of the Athletics Report, and he still mocked Kate Cunningham to Detroit. So I want to make that clear. But there were like rumblings that Troy Reaver was going to look at four or five guys for the number one spot. Do you think, and I think the comparisons being made are that this isn't the Zion draft, where it's that much of a no-brainer. Do you think, honestly, like just just be crass with it, should any should they be considering anyone but Kate at number one, or should they be even considering trading out of number one? I don't think they should be considering trading out because this class is so strong and does have so many options who could be future superstars. I don't think it would be too ridiculous to be considering a few other players. 
in this spot. I'm firmly of the belief that when you have the number one pick, you take the best player, regardless of how he may fit with the roster. If you're worried about how Killian Hayes fits with Cade Cunningham, that's not really a reason to not draft a player as talented as Cunningham. But I do think high enough of Evan Mobley that I would understand. Uh, He very much feels like that next evolutionary modern big who can just be a total game-changing presence on both ends of the court. There are still flaws to his game, but I do think he is good enough to at least be in that conversation. I also see it with other guys. Like I, I, I view Scotty Barnes as another option who can just do everything that you want from a player in the modern game. I think there's enough upside with Jalen Green um, to, to justify that if you're just entirely sold on him after the workouts. I don't think Cunningham is like that mortal lock to go number one, even if I do believe that he's the best player in this class. I don't see it from Evan Mobley. The like I know he has the ball skills that would make him transformative offensively, where if someone like me is going to say, I'm not drafting a big at number one, number two, it just seems like it's so slow to me. And I'm just curious as to whether that's going to translate in NBA speed. And so Cade Cunningham is just the guy to me. And if you're not going to pick him, you should trade out. But I wouldn't trade out. Like I would take Cade Cunningham, and it wouldn't be like, you know, we would. That would be that discussion wouldn't even be had. Like they they'd be already moving on to the rest of their draft prep work, off season prep work. Like Cade Cunningham would be in Detroit. You've done more college research than I have, but just no, like having watched what I've watched of Evan Mobley, I just can't talk myself into him over Cade, or even if you're going to go Jalen Suggs or Jalen Green. Even on the defensive end, just the foot speed that he has there and his ability to entirely shut down the paint and still cycle out to guard on the perimeter. I just I feel I, like he is like in that Bam Adebayo mold. That's awesome, but Bam Adebayo is not running an offense either, and he's supposed to be this transformative big. He's a great passer, but you can't play him without another primary ball handler. And I think if you have the opportunity to draft that in Cade Cunningham, draft that in Cade Cunningham. The... Um, which this is my at Dan Favalli asks, which team is best set up or most likely to trade for Damian Lillard if he becomes available? I, I don't know that I even want to like grace that with a response. <laughs> I mean, it's probably, I think people are going to assume he'll force his way to the Knicks. I don't know, given where the Knicks are at, that you could say he cares about winning and wants to leave what the Blazers have for what the Knicks have. You would have to be like, because think about what they're going to have to give up to get him. And it's probably, RJ Barrett and IQ are in that. And so like his Dame and Julius Randle, um, the team would be probably Philadelphia, right? Because Ben Simmons is going to be the centerpiece. Right. And so, and they can include whatever else they want to attach to it. And also like, maybe does Dame want to go there? Who knows? But he has four years left on his contract. Does his extension even start? Maybe he has three. Um, Like he's not, yeah, he can kind of dictate terms, but like you have four years left on you. Yeah. He has, he has three. So like he's not dictating necessarily, or excuse me, he has four. Oh my God, I can't, I can't count. He has four. So like he can't really dictate terms as much as a, even a James Harden would have. That was a quick one. This question I found interesting um, came from. God, um, sorry, I, I wrote down the pronunciation of this. Um, Gregoire, do you think Ben Simmons is done being an All Star starting next year? I definitely do not. I mean, he has legitimate flaws to his game that have been exposed and severely so. But let's not forget that he is arguably the most versatile defender in the entire NBA, who is going to be a yearly threat for Defensive Player of the Year and a mainstay on all defensive teams. 
He's still one of the, the premier passers in the association. He can finish around the basket. He's a transition threat. He has a growing game as a cutter. There are significant weaknesses, but he is an extraordinarily talented basketball player who, even with all of the free throw flaws and the inability to even touch the ball down the stretch of close games in the fourth quarter, rendering him as some kind of weird like hybrid point guard wing three and D player minus the three. Like he still makes <laughs> such an impact in the first three quarters that he's providing positive value nonetheless. And in the regular season, we don't see those flaws exploited as much. He's still going to put up big numbers. He's still going to be one of the better players in the Eastern Conference, or should he be traded to Portland or elsewhere in the Western Conference, and he's going to be in the All-Star conversation. Maybe he won't make it next year because the narrative has shifted so much after this postseason series. But, like, he's, what, 23, I want to say off the top of my head? like 24. 24. Like, let's. there's no way that he's not going to be in the All-Star conversation again. Yeah, forever, sure. But I will argue that this could be a DeMar DeRozan-type situation where you've seen him become a liability enough in the playoffs where you dismiss some of what's happening during the regular season. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I would probably lean towards it's okay. But because we've seen him struggle so much, even if he puts up those numbers, I think people are going to be inclined to go to a different direction. It's sort of the, the, the inverse of Trey Young where people were wondering, oh, could he be... Look at the numbers he put up this year. He should have been an all-star over Ben Simmons, if we're going to go by that. And was it, did he make the all-star team? No, he didn't. I can't remember, mm. but no. he didn't. So now he's going to get more consideration because of what we've seen him do in the playoffs. So I, I actually think there's a chance that for the next couple of years, unless we see a measurable improvement in his attack mode, um, and certainly next year, I might be a little... like, Or just his free throw shooting, does he do anything to expand his range? Maybe if he gets traded, it'll be a different story. But it wouldn't surprise me if we don't see Ben Simmons in the All-Star game for the next few years, where I think people sort of looked at DeMar DeRozan. It's a different players, but like they looked at his struggles in the playoffs, and it kind of eclipsed, because he's still a great regular season player. So, And I would still argue he's valuable in certain playoff situations. Uh, Amy SK asked, Dan, I know this is wild, but could Phoenix prepare a package for Dame if for some weird uh, reason CP3 doesn't resign? I mean, they could. Because you have Aiton, you have Bridges, you have Cam Johnson, you owe your 2022 pick to OKC, but you have the rest of your picks. You still have Jalen Green if there's any intrigue there. I think what you need in that scenario is the the gall to be like, okay, we're going to gut our roster after losing CP3. So you're losing CP3 and then losing your supporting cast. Like, what does Jay Crowder, Devin Booker, Damian Lillard, and then a bunch of like veterans get you? Like, can you get Robert Covington back in that deal as well? Um but the other thing would be you need Portland to want to be rebuilding in that scenario, not trying. Where I think Ben Simmons allows them to straddle two timelines. I don't know if a package built around, let's just say Cam Johnson, Bridges, and Aiton. I think that would have to be like your starting point. I don't think that does the same. So they could. I don't think you're getting Lillard without either Aiden or Booker. So I, I do feel like you have to start there. Yeah, no. I, you're, first of all, if you're giving up Booker in that trade, I'm not making the trade because it defeats the purpose of getting Dane. But I agree with you. Aiton has to be there with Bridges and probably – um johnson and then probably draft equity so i think they could i just don't know that they would let's try and blow through a couple here before we get out of here i do have one quick one from Sacktown underscore slovenia asks how good were the kings um against playoff teams this year the answer was they were not good against playoff teams they were 10 and 14 against west playoff teams which was actually surprisingly pleasant um then they were 6 and 14 against the east that's 16 and 28 overall against playoff teams now if you're looking for some just 
like positive. This isn't positive. They were 15 and 26 against teams above 500, 16 and 15 against teams below 500. So they did have a winning record against sub 500 opponents. What I found intriguing is that in games where the point differential was plus or minus three points in the final two minutes, the Sacramento Kings were 17 and 12. So yeah, there's some variant. Well, there's probably a ton of variance and randomness in there, but if you're a Kings fan and want to look to some encouragement, you had a winning record against below 500 teams and you played well in some big time moments. So um, very curious to see what they look like next year, because I still think there's a chance that they blow it up. Do you have anything to add to that? Adam? Not really. I think you covered that one. I have two questions left. And I think this one from Canal Sethi is cited by the fact that Cleveland ended up in number three in the lottery. And so people think that there's a chance Evan Mobley could fall there. Which teams should trade for Jared Allen? I want to make it clear it would have to be a sign-in trade because he's a restricted free agent. That's not impossible. It's just it would have to be a team without cap space that wants him. Or, you know, since Cleveland has the right to match, you have cap space, but you want to work with Cleveland because they're not going to let him walk. They'll match it. My question to you would be, would you pay Jared Allen and draft Evan Mobley? Jared Allen's going to cost you at least 15. So you would? You, would, you don't care? I, I think I, it, goes, it goes back to the previous answer about Cade Cunningham where I think at the top of the draft with this caliber of player, you just don't worry about the fit and you figure it out later. And I do believe that Jared Allen is good enough to be a cornerstone in Cleveland, a lower level cornerstone, but a cornerstone nonetheless. So I think that you retain him and then you take the best player available. And if that's Mobley, so be it. You could also argue that he's insurance then against Mobley not panning out. And you could also argue that let's say Mobley pans out. You have Jared Allen on a more expensive salary makes him more intriguing to trade for. If there were teams this offseason that were looking at that, Charlotte definitely OKC. needs a center. OKC needs a center, but and I would pay him because he's so young, but are they going to pay anyone would be my follow-up question there. Might as well at this point. Like You're not going to be able to have this many rookies, and you're still going to have a bunch of guys on rookie-scale contracts so you can afford that kind of overpay in the immediate future. I, he and Shea would be so fun together. I, I the pick and roll combination there could be fun. Uh, one of the teams I thought of too um, is Toronto. What would you think of him and Pascal together? Because they seem to really want a big next to him. I think I worry a little OG bit about fives. the spacing limitations there, though. I like the idea yeah. of like giving more minutes to Chris Boucher because there's a little more stretch to his game. Thank you. You know, you know your podcast co-host well. I, I appreciate that. No other team really springs to mind for me though, and like centers are a wonky market, but like I don't. That might even have the feasibility to like have a Cleveland. Like if you weren't, if you didn't have faith in Isaiah Stewart, Detroit. But I could, I could also see like Portland moving on from Nurkic and going for more of that like defensive anchor at the five. That could be an intriguing landing spot. The Warriors maybe, but the fit with Draymond is terrible, and you have Wiseman there already. So that was actually a yeah. terrible suggestion by me. I would say the Kings, except I think Rashawn Holmes is noticeably better than. Uh, oh, the I think we're missing an easy one. Unless they draft Evan Mobley themselves, in which case Jared Allen probably isn't going to be signed and traded anyway. But Houston, yeah, I just I have no feel for what Houston's going to do yet. But he's young <laughs> but enough. I, I where agree like that if, it would be a fun one. Like him and Christian let, Wood together does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, that's the luxury of Christian Wood is that you can play any type of big essentially next to him. Maybe Indiana, so that you can run out Miles Turner, Demontis Sabonis, and Jared Allen at the same time, and Goga. Let's just really lean into it. And Jakar Sanders. They should, well. they should like, also sign Rashawn Holmes and just go true five picks. <laughs> uh, final question here. 
Uh, the other one was way too in depth, so I'll skip that one. Um, Michael asks, what team can Russell Westbrook maximize his value with next season? I'm impressed that he thinks Russell Westbrook, I have no doubt he'll be available, but I'm impressed that he thinks Russell Westbrook's going to be traded. I, You're not going to like I feel like this team. might be a oh, cop-out answer, but I, I want to see him stay in Washington. Like He really reinvigorated that team and pushed it into that play-in tournament. And the fit with him and Bradley Beal still can make sense. Washington has a number of up-and-coming pieces in Denny Advia and Rui Hachimura and Daniel Gafford, who really exploded at the tail end of the season. Like This, this team is intriguing to me. And he, for all his flaws and for all the times he might shoot them out of games, does make it better. I If Bradley Beal doesn't want out, you don't move Russell Westbrook because he elevates your peak even if he could potentially lower your your floor he can he can heighten your peak and whatever you trade for him you're not getting back value the two teams that spring to mind where i think that he could actually help them um los angeles they've shown a will uh the clippers they've shown a willingness to play small so if you can have four shooters around him where it's Kawhi, paul george marcus morris and then is it terrence man is it luke Kennard? i don't care patrick beverly that team would make and they can cobble together the salaries between having Beverly, Kennard, I'm assuming Ibaka opts in if they wanted to. And the other team would be, I'm not endorsing this, I don't think it's good, would be the Knicks. Someone who can attack downhill and actually get out in transition, which R.J. Barrett would probably love, because I can't tell you the number of times I've seen R.J. Barrett beat his entire team down the floor and look disappointed that no one was with him. I I don't have a feel for what Bradley Beal is going to do in Washington. He did seem non-committal in his uh, end-of-season presser, but... Russell Westbrook's still a tough fit to find. I think you need to look at teams where they have, and Washington can run these lineups out. Uh, maybe not so much with Daniel Gafford, but with Thomas Bryant healthy, like he shot the three ball well. You need to have four shooters around him to really maximize mm-hmm. him. You can get away with three in certain situations, but four shooters is the way to maximize him. Right. Do you have anything else to add? Um, not particularly. I am curious if you put together i'm trying to find the question but it was the one about the european mount rushmore i didn't even see that miroslav Miroslav shuk said it might have been ah that's right because i actually put out a a tweet solicitation for questions and actually got responses this time around why didn't you tell me you did that so i wouldn't have thrown mine out this is, I just we'll assumed that. you knew, and then you sent it like 20 minutes later, and I just thought you were trying to prove a point that yours would be more popular than mine, and it, it, it still worked. But I actually got some questions <laughs> this time. <laughs> I apologize. I didn't know you sent one out. Let's hear it. You're, you're all good. So yeah, uh, Miroslav asked, uh, who is on the Mount Rushmore of European NBA stars all time? And I know since you haven't seen it, I'll give you a, a second to think about it. I think Dirk is the lock. He 100% has to be there. I think Giannis, as a two-time MVP, is already on that, along with Pau Gasol. And the fourth one is interesting because I feel like you can go in a ton of different directions. You could have Marc Gasol. You could have Tony Kukoc. You could have uh, Tony Parker. You could go older and go with Detlef Schrempf. Um, but I kind of think that it's already Jokic. Yeah, Luca. Um, Luca will end up on it one day, but it's too soon for that. Is it too much of a stretch to say that? Um. Well, okay, so let's go. Giannis. Giannis is a lock to me. Giannis and Dirk are the two absolute locks. I think. Um, 
And then you have like if we're including if we're including legacy and non NBA play, then we're looking at Drazen Petrovic and Arvidas Sabonis. But I think we're isolating this solely to the NBA. Paige Stojakovic is up there. That's a tough one. Uh, Vlade Divac, like, like there are a lot of options. Yeah, there's a ton. I might go ahead and put Luca there already. I just I have trouble putting him over Tony Parker, who won so many championships and made so many yeah. All Star appearances, even though he wasn't the absolute star of his team. That like, so I think I'll... I think my answer has to be Dirk, Giannis. Pau Gasol and Tony Parker, maybe after talking through it, I think Pau feels put close Pau... to a lock to me. Pau, yeah, definitely feels close to a lock. I would probably, I might, I might even have like Shrimp or over Tony Parker. I don't know why I'm not about Tony Parker being in that spot. Marc Gasol, I'd probably have over Tony Parker too. That's a tough question. I wish That's I would have really known that you sent out a mailbag. Oh yeah, no, Jokic is on there. He's on there. Come on, it's Jokic, it's Pau, it's Dirk, it's Giannis. Over. If we're putting, I've if we're putting, Giannis we need to expand there, Mount Rushmore. Well, yeah, that too. So, but if we're putting Giannis on there, I feel like it's fair to put Jokic on there. Yeah, I can, I can see that. That's fair. I was about to, or you, I was about to say, or you could say nothing. That's fine too. Look, thank you everyone who stuck with us or popped in and talked with us. We are here as of now, every Sunday, normally at 4 p.m. Sometimes I change the time if Adam's not with me because um, I can and I'm drunk with power. Please, 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 please remember to subscribe to Hardwood Knox if you have not already. You can find us wherever you're getting your podcast. Also, go to YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Hardwood Knox. Just search Hardwood Knox on YouTube. We come right up. Um, thank you all so much for listening. As always, we leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only. He was in our trailer video, which you can also check out on Twitter. And I feel like I haven't shouted him out in a while, or maybe I did. But future Max Star, Max Contract Star, because he is a restricted free agent, Frank Nielakina. <laughs>